This is the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series, a tribute to the visionary climbers who made the sport what it is today, and a commitment to securing their legacies. In this installment of the Legacy Podcast, we'll be hearing from the one and only Yvonne Chouinard, whose name you've likely heard before, along with me, your host, Jim Aikman, filmmaker and longtime contributor to the club. Thanks for joining. Well, you know, I've, I've been kind of a serial climber all my life. You know, I, I like to specialize in something for a while and then get to a 75% proficiency or something and, and then go off in a whole other direction. I get bored. I remember spending a two, couple of years just climbing cracks, a couple of years just climbing little face climbs few years just doing big walls and then you know ice climbing and then expedition climbing and doing every aspect of climbing Yvonne Chouinard is a household name in the climbing world his resume spans the globe in more than a few decades making an indelible mark on the sport's golden age and establishing climbs everywhere from Yosemite Valley to the high Himalayas. As a designer, his gear innovations set a standard early on, from his pitons to specialty fabrics, advances in ice climbing equipment like the ice axe and crampon, and the list is simply too long to complete here. I mean, when we're designing gear, we were so far ahead of the rest of the, of the world that we had to train people what to do with the gear. But Yvonne's reputation also transcends climbing. He's known as a surfer, kayaker, falconer, and especially a fly fisherman in the Tinkara style. And of course, Yvonne is the founder of Patagonia, one of the leading brands in the outdoor industry. Through Patagonia, Yvonne has advocated for important causes from conservation to diversity, equity, and inclusion, making measurable changes in American politics. It would be simply impossible to cover everything in Yvonne's incredible climbing and business careers. But through it all, he's stayed humble. And today, we're going to listen as he muses about his early days in climbing, before every city in the country had multiple climbing gyms and van lifers proliferated across the country, with romantic ideas of repeating the iconic experiences that Yvonne and his compatriots chronicled in their books and films, not to mention the proverbial campfire. You'll hear former AAC president Jim McCarthy chuckling occasionally in the background as he conducted the interview with Yvonne in California. So, where did it all start for Yvonne Chouinard? When I was about 15 or so, I'd, I'd show up on Sundays for these outings with the Sierra Club. So I... I learned to climb a little bit, and Don Prentice showed me some more. And then when I was 16, uh, he said, hey, let's go to the Wind River Range and climb Gannett Peak, the highest peak in Wyoming. And so I was going to meet him out there with a couple other guys, other young guys. So I drove my old 40 Ford out there by myself and met him at the upper Green River Lakes and walked into the 
Gannett Peak. And in those days, there was no guidebook or anything, so we got kind of lost. And everybody wanted to go one way, and I thought it was better to go the other way, and so I, we split up. And I soloed Gannett by the west face, which <laughs> hadn't been, wasn't climbed till years and years later, and oh my God, I can't. I had Sears Roebuck boots on, work boots. I got up, this is in June, I got up on the gooseneck up above, which is all snow, snow, snow slopes, and slipping around with these Sears Roebuck boots and a thunderstorm, lightning. I'm so lucky I'm alive, I can't believe it. I was climbing on the west side, I was climbing these little 20-foot vertical cliffs, and and uh, you know, the type of thing that you can't back down, had no rope or anything. And then I went from there, after that, I drove to the Tetons, and I got in with some uh, climbers from Dartmouth, who were the only climbers around in those days. Dartmouth Outing Club produced a lot of, and Harvard and Yale had climbing clubs. And so they were all college kids, and, and so nobody would climb with me because I didn't have any experience, but I bullshitted my way into going with some guys. This is in June, and we did a climb called Templeton's Crack on Symmetry Spire, which is this, in June, it's just this slimy, slippery, horrible thing. I have no idea why they'd climb that. It's one of the worst climbs in the Tetons. And uh, so we got up to one pitch, and the guys tried it, and they couldn't do it. So they hand me all the hardware, and they say, well, you're going to have to do it. So I look at this hardware. I had no, I never had used hardware before. They give me a hammer and pitons, and I didn't know how to use them or anything. And, but I was a pretty good climber, scrambler and stuff, and I, I led the pitch. And, you know, kind of escaped death again. And slowly uh, began learning to climb in the Tetons. And that's, then when I went back to California, then I started hanging out at Stony Point on weekends during the winter with uh, Dave Rarick and Bob Camps and Tom Frost and, and uh, there was a Sierra Club guys, and they would climb in the San Gabriel Mountains, they would climb at Takeets Rock, Chuck Wiltz, uh, the Farquhars. At the same time we were doing that in the Bay Area, the Chuck Pratts and Steve Ropers, and, and that group was taking over the baton from uh, the old guys from the Sierra Club up there and stuff. So we were the California climbers were two independent groups. It's kind of like, you know, you read about the samurais and stuff. They had, you know, the so-and-so school of sword fighting, and then the so-and-so school of over there, you know, and it was kind of like that. And there was a little bit of kind of competition going on between the two schools of climbing. From the very beginning, Yvonne was most interested in the style with which something was climbed, which superseded the physical difficulty or even the aesthetics. 
Unless something was done ethically and intentionally, he wasn't interested. And the Holy Grail? First Ascents. I was really interested in just going and doing First Ascents. And my routine was to climb in Yosemite from 1st of April till 4th of July. Then go to the Tetons or the Canadian Rockies or the Wind Rivers and do more alpine type climbing. And then in the fall, I would hitch a ride back with some of these college students going back to school. And I'd go back to the Schwangunks and climb in September, October in the Schwangunks. And then hitchhike back home, back to California, hitchhike across the country. And I'd sell my pitons in the Schwangunks. Starting in the late 1950s, Yvonne saw an opportunity to improve his climbing, not through training or techniques, but through the gear. He bought a secondhand forge and began making pitons, which he sold out of the back of his car at climbing areas around the country. Yeah, that's how I supported myself. I'd, you know, I'd hammer them out and hammer out these pitons and could do two an hour and sold them for a buck and a half each carry them with me and sell them to climbers directly. As you can imagine, selling pitons for $1.50 didn't make him into a titan of industry right away. It was all about subsistence, living as cheaply as possible to maximize climbing time. This was the birth of the dirt bag. That was the days I was personally eating cat food and, you know, buying cases of damaged cat food in San Francisco and living off of that. and. And then we were living on porcupines, killing porcupines, ground squirrels, grouse, anything to get protein. In the Tetons, we'd go down to the Jackson Market, and the butcher there knew us, and he'd keep bones for us and, and pieces of fat. We call it fat. It would say, hey, you got any fatty crap today? Yeah, I got a bag for you. Give us a bag. I mean, we were living hand in mouth, but you know, those days, this is the 60s, the country was pretty fat, and you could live off the fat of the land. You know, I bought a car for $15, and I drove to Mexico City, drove up to Canada, gas was 25 cents a gallon, camping was free. You could get a job, temporary job, anytime you felt like it. And you could live off the fat of the land, and it was really easy living. Those days are gone. I mean, you can't do that anymore. Yvonne was a world-class dirtbag and found ways to live on the fringes of society to support his climbing habit, along with his contemporaries. Climbers like Royal Robbins, Tom Frost, and Leighton Kaur. But Yvonne didn't write the book on this lifestyle. He learned it from the most legendary dirtbag of all, Fred Becky, who passed away in 2017 at the age of 94. I showed up in Seattle. He had a pink and black Thunderbird in those days. Yvonne first tied in with Fred when he was just 18 years old, hopping on a trail that Fred had already been blazing for many years. We go to a restaurant and orders a cup of coffee and then we walk out with all the creamers and all the sugars and, I mean, Fred is, the definition of dirtbag is Fred Becky. That word dirtbag came from Yosemite. In fact, it's in, it's in the dictionary that it came from Yosemite. And 
But Fred, Fred was the definition of it. And we went up to the Canyon Rockies and we pulled off some great cl climbs. The north face of Edicaville was the first of those big Canyon Rockies walls ever done. Made a film on it, in fact. We went over to Selkirk's, hitched a ride on a freight train, climbed uh, some north faces there, uh, went into the Bugaboos and did a bunch of climbs in there. Classic climbs now that some of the 50 classic climbs of America. And Fred is an artful dodger. He's, he never pushed his climbing beyond 5'7", 5'8" which used to piss me off because I always wanted to, you know, I could climb a lot harder than that. And, but he, you know, as soon as he got to five, seven, five, eight, he'd slam in a piton and stand on it or pull on it. Uh, but, you know, we, we were a great team and I learned a lot. Fred invited Yvonne on a trip to the Wind River Range in Wyoming, home to some of the country's highest quality alpine rock. And as the saying goes, it wasn't an adventure until something went wrong, something Fred took as a given. On one of the climbs on South Tower, we bivouacked and he had bought a 25 cent sport coat. He always had these sport coats that go way down, big long things. And and he read Louis L'Amour novels. And uh, that bivouac, he took the sport coat, took the novel up, crumpled the pages up, put it in the lining of the sport coat, made a down jacket out of it, and bivouacked in that. And the next morning, he burned it to heat up some tea. <laughs> 25 cent bivouac. <laughs> Of course, no conversation with Yvonne Chouinard is complete without his days in Yosemite Valley, the crucible of American climbing and a place that Yvonne was instrumental in developing, along with names like Warren Harding and Chuck Pratt, who will be familiar to anyone that's studied the golden age of climbing in Yosemite or seen their exploits in films like Valley Uprising and Glenn Denny's classic El Cap. I had never told my parents, I never really explained what climbing is. And they were never really interested. I just said, you know, I'm going climbing, and that was it. Until one day they're sitting there watching television. And here comes, on the news program, here comes a helicopter going by the face of El Cap. And it zooms in on us bivouacking underneath that overhang in hammocks. And there's their son. And they just about fell off their chairs because the first time in their lives they realized what climbing is. Yvonne's exploits in the valley are well chronicled at this point. So I wanted to hear some of the lesser known stories, some of the ascents that stuck in Yvonne's memory, but had maybe eluded other publications. Yeah, Mount Watkins, yeah. I mean, Chuck, Chuck walk around with a black down jacket in July in the valley. I mean, he hated the cold, not bothered by the heat at all. And we did this, first ascent of the south face of Mount Watkins. And Watkins is kind of like a concave wall and it gets no wind at all. It's like an oven. And we did it in July, mid-July, I think. And it was so, it was 
Chuck and I and Warren Harding. And Warren Harding is another hot weather guy. We were up there three days or something and ran out of food and water. And it, we had to quit during the middle of the day because we couldn't touch the rock. It would blister your fingers touching the rock. So we ran out of, ran out of water. We were so wasted. First of all, we stopped peeing. And then your perspiration starts smelling like urine. And then after that, you, then when your perspiration stops, you die, basically. And we were getting close to really crapping out. And one guy would start up a pitch and only be able to go a third of the way and be lowered down. And then the next guy would go a third and get lowered down. And I mean, that's how far off we were in. And Warren, we had a tiny little bit of water left, and Warren would not take his share and gave it to us. And so Chuck and I led on to the top, but I remember uh, being on a lead, and I don't remember who was belaying, but I looked down, and my belayer would passed out. <laughs> so I had no belay. <laughs> Completely passed out. I once totaled up, I'd done a hundred bivouacs hanging on, on walls. And one of them, I was with Chuck Pratt. We did the first ascent on Middle Cathedral Rock. And it was unplanned bivouac. And we couldn't do it in a day. And so we're, we're up high up there and on a little ledge. And I had shorts on and a t-shirt and he had long pants and a sweatshirt or something. And it was cold, it was really, really cold. And we're sitting on this ledge. Each one of us, you know, he can't sleep, we're just freezing to death. And in the middle of the night, I hear this dark humor thing. But unless we embrace, we're gonna die. <laughs> now, Yvonne has certainly achieved a lot in his life and he's not done yet. But I'd be remiss if I didn't also bring in his partner in crime, his better half, the woman that's been there with him all along, brought together by an auspicious meeting in none other than Yosemite's Camp 4. I met Melinda in the, in the valley. Uh, I had gone on to the Sierras with Royal, and we did a wall in the Sierras over three, four days. And I came back and somebody had taken over my campsite. I'd left stuff there, but somebody had moved in and my table had different cooking stuff on it and everything, and it was, it was Melinda. I'd taken over my campsite. And we were arguing about the campsite and I said, well, let's, let's go settle this with a hot fudge Sunday." She was working as a uh, maid in the, in the lodge going to school at Fresno State. And the latest copy of my book, I tell this story about one day we were hanging out in Camp 4, and these tough girls drove up in a kind of a low-rider car, and they're right in front of us, and they throw a beer can out the window. And Melinda just jumps over and says, pick that up. And they gave her the finger. She walked to the back of their car and ripped their license plate off with her bare hands <laughs> and took the license plate to the rangers and turned them in. But with her bare hands, lift, 
I thought, oh, Jesus. I was smitten there. <laughs> yeah. I know I could listen to Yvonne spin yarns all day, and we hope to return to this interview for a video episode of the series before too long. There's certainly enough material, from his legendary expedition to Patagonia and first ascent of Fitzroy, his climbs in the Karakoram, Himalayas, Tibet, and the European Alps. But for now, curious listeners can learn more in his books, online, and through his many charitable organizations, like the Fair Labor Association, 1% for the Planet, the Textile Exchange, the Conservation Alliance, and the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, all of which he co-founded. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Legacy Series, and stay tuned for more podcasts and film content from the American Alpine Club. This interview was conducted by Legacy Series co-founder Jim McCarthy and captured in Yvonne's legendary tin shed in Ventura, California, recorded by Val Franco. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.